Hello everyone, today I talk with Derek Gleason, content lead at CXL.com. For the fifth year in a row, CXL has held their worldwide state of optimization survey in which they poll our industry on who we are, what we do, and what we earn, and what we struggle with. Derek leads this project at CXL, and together with him I discuss some of the first findings before they publish their 2020 findings in their report later this week. My name is Gide Jansen and welcome to the Zero Cafe, the award-winning podcast where I show you the behind the scenes of large and small optimization and growth teams and talk with their specialists about data and human-driven optimization. My goal with the Zero Cafe podcast is to make websites and the lives of optimization specialists like you a lot better. And we're doing this by spreading a mindset of experimentation and validation. You are a vital part in reaching this goal. And one important way for you to help out with this is by sharing relevant episodes with your colleagues. And if you yourself are not subscribed yet, make sure you are by checking this in your podcast app. It really means a lot and your actions do make a difference. So thank you for doing this. In the previous episode, I spoke with Cassandra Campbell about optimization at Shopify. If you missed it, you can listen to that episode on www.zero.cafe or in the podcast app you're listening with right now. This episode of Zero Cafe is made possible by our partners Convert.com, Online Dialogue, Sidespect, Online Influence Institute, Content Square and our new partner VWO. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 48. Derek, welcome to the Zero Cafe podcast. And of course, we would love to know a bit uh, about your background and how you ended up doing content for CXL. Sure. So I've been uh, I've been basically running the blog now for a little over two years. Um, we have somebody on the team now that also helps um, run the blog. When I came in, it was sort of uh, replacing a few people who had been doing that for a while. It's um, in the sort of internet context, it's been around forever. Pep started doing it back in 2011. Um, so we're coming up on 10 years now, publishing a little over 700 posts. Um, but I'm basically in charge of getting a couple posts out each week. Um, I would consider myself a generalist. I, I used to uh, edit encyclopedias years ago, so I'm sort of used to uh, like working in a lot of different fields. And when I came in, my background was more in content and SEO, and I had to kind of learn more of the CRO stuff on the fly to be a really solid editor for that, knowing that PEP standards are, are pretty ruthless um, when it comes to content in general and specifically CRO stuff. Yeah. Um, so I kind of got a crash course into it, which was also has been interesting having been an outsider um, in the conversion optimization field. And then over time, sort of still mostly knowledge as an editor more than a practitioner. But um, it's been fascinating to learn the field and both that and just to kind of see the differences between that and some of the other segments of digital marketing. I have a lot of respect for the conversion optimization people. It's hard work. <laughs> and I know from uh, from Pep when he started out with uh, the CXL blog, um, his idea was uh, to create the best piece of content about a really specific mm -hmm. subject uh, that was out there in the world. Basically, mm -hmm. uh, create mm -hmm. the best the best piece of content. Uh, in addition to that, Pep has a certain style of writing. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, how hard or easy was it for you to to adopt that? Yeah. So, so the, the, the nuts and bolts of sort of the, the quality standards are, um, were kind of easier to pick up on. And some of the stuff that we try to do that sort of differentiates this, and, and this is stuff that Pep's done for a long time, is to cite the original research. So, you know, going back to sort of, you know, the academic journals, if they have them, if it's, you know, a, a thing about psychology, but really finding the, the hard research to back up claims versus sort of making your claims you know, just saying what you want. And then also just lots of examples and very practically kind of how to focus. So really giving people the information that they need to actually execute on things versus 
just kind of what you often see now with stuff, which is you have a lot of uh, freelancers and journalists who are writing about things that they've never done. And they're sort of believing that their job as the writer is to pretend to be an expert rather than to go find the expertise and incorporate it. So another thing that you'll often see on the 6L blog is a lot of like long form block quotes from really, really smart people and practitioners. And it's something that I wish existed more broadly because it's really easy if you're a writer or an editor to say, you know what, this is a little bit outside my expertise, but I know these five people who have been doing this for a decade and are super, super smart. And I can go ask them good questions. And then basically all, all my article, all my article writing is just writing transitions between their quotes rather than trying to say, I've never done this, but I need to pretend like I have, and then going out and making a bunch of claims. So, um, that's what we've still tried to stick with. And that's certainly something that, that Pep started as far as the style of writing goes. Um, I've definitely failed on that front and I don't know that I would try to replicate, um, you know, Pep style. It's a great sort of, informal, honest, conversational style to writing that I think was part of the reason the blog picked up on early on, because it's, you know, some of this stuff is really technical. You talk about, you know, A-B testing statistics, or you're talking about, um, you know, user research or some of the psychology behind things, behavioral psychology, some of that can get pretty academic, but he always had a sort of like what he would call like a no bullshit, like very straightforward, use human language way to approach it, which I think made it more accessible for a lot of people in a way that it hadn't been previously. Yeah. And to put it in business perspective, basically the, the blog is a generator for CXL, the agency, but also for the, for the paywall content, the, the courses, right? Yep. It's, it's been the primary acquisition engine for a long, long time. Um, we're still very much um, organic traffic focused as far as probably like if you look at analytics, you could say that roughly 80% of every site visit is comes organically to a blog post. Um, so it's for most people, their, their initial encounter with, with CXL, the, the interesting and challenging part about that from a content perspective years down the road is that after you've published 700 posts, you've kind of covered like the core stuff that is most relevant to you that's going to have a high search volume. So then you're in a choice of kind of how do we how do we balance like staying on brand and wanting to do stuff that's in depth, but also keep that acquisition engine going? Because usually the, the more in depth, the more uh, specific something is, the smaller the search volume is going to be. So you, you're kind of having to balance some of those things, which... Um, I don't know that you ever sort of settle on it. You just kind of go back and forth. But one of the challenges and, and that you find if you are focused on organic search, is it's really easy to just start covering introductory stuff because that's where all the search volume is. A lot of the basics like how to whatever else, which historically hasn't really been on, on brand for the blog. Um, so trying to balance some of those needs. Um, luckily with PAP, I mean, this is, you know, anybody that's involved in content or just in a company that relies on content to have somebody at the top who started you know, all the acquisitions and based on the blog, he really knows and understands and appreciates the value that content provides as far as the first part of that funnel of bringing people in. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not something where I have to like go out and convince him or that I have to get permission to like write about something that's super cool that probably has no search volume that, you know, maybe gets picked up on social media and some newsletters. Maybe it doesn't. I could obviously write like a basic, what is, marketing term kind of post and get more traffic. But um, we've always had the buy-in from him to sort of go out and try to cover the cool stuff, you know, even if it doesn't necessarily max out what it looks like in analytics. For over 10 years now, Online Dialogue advises about evidence-based conversion optimization with a focus on data and psychology. We see that analyzing data and recognizing customer behavior results in a better online dialogue with your clients and a higher ROI. The team of strategists, analysts, psychologists, and UX specialists gathers valuable insights in the online behavior of your visitors, and together with you, they optimize the different elements of your CRO program through redesign, expert reviews, A-B tests, and behavioral analysis. 
For more information about their services, go to onlinedialogue.com. And speaking of content, uh, yearly you guys do uh, a little uh, market research and uh, are gracious enough to uh, to sh- share that with us uh, and um, post about that. So can you, can you introduce the, the survey uh, to our listeners? Sure, yeah. Thanks for, uh, you know, letting us talk about it. It's something that takes a lot of work. And because it often comes out in December, you know, if people are already off for the holidays, it's gone. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like, well, maybe <laughs> next year. Um but no, it's, it's, we've been doing it since 2016, which is pretty fun. So now we're starting to get some of that longitudinal data of picking up some trends that are happening in, in the conversion optimization industry. But yeah. it's, a, it's a pretty robust, you know, uh, takes about 10 minutes to complete. We, we, sort, we send it out to people that we know. We usually partner with somebody else. We partnered with uh, convert.com this year to help get some more awareness for the survey. But it's kind of a comprehensive look at conversion optimization, both from the nuts and bolts of kind of the demographics of who's doing it, you know, what are, the, what are the salary ranges in different countries? Some of that fun information so that people can take, you know, the survey back to their boss and demand a raise. Um, <laughs> or if they're getting paid more than most people to not bring it up. Um, and then also, uh, you know, the, the most interesting or exciting part for me is always the, the open-ended questions um, where you kind of learn about, hey, what's what are the biggest challenges that you're facing? And, and seeing how some of those compare year over year always um, fascinating to see an industry that since we started doing it in 2016, you can certainly this year especially get a sense that there's a – there's both a maturity in the industry that's starting to grow, which is both good and bad as far as it's opening up new challenges for people. And then a kind of democratization of, you know, a lot of people doing CRO now that based on the tech probably wasn't feasible for them to do three, four or five years ago. Yeah, it also includes uh, what people actually do, right? I mean, CRO is a bit of a, uh, an overarching mm-hmm. term. Uh, sure. Do people actually do they do A-B tests, multivariate tests, uh, user research, what kind of things do you actually Sure. And it's still, you know, the the predominant thing is people are running A-B tests. I mean, you know, we, we asked them sort of, you doing A-B end um, or, you know, uh, multivariate tests, like you're doing different things. And it's it usually comes down to people are still, for the most part, running those A-B tests and, you know, a pretty sort of straightforward testing program. For some people, we see, you know, they're doing that in Google Ads, or they're doing that via email, um, as well as working on site. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, a, a lot of what we've seen this year to, to some degree more than other years is a lot of people being limited by traffic, a few of which cited, you know, COVID making things difficult because either they lost a lot of traffic they expected or they were just these wild fluctuations that they couldn't predict when certain places went into lockdown where you might have been in the middle of a testing cycle and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, the lockdown, your traffic drop, drops off a cliff. Um, some of that, I think, is also from people getting involved where Google Optimize certainly it was, um, this was the first year that we'd actually asked people about what their kind of favorite testing tool was. And interestingly, Google Optimize is uh, had almost twice the number of mentions as VW and Optimizely combined. Um, so wow. you see, you know, you see how quickly Google comes into a market and offers a free product and all of a sudden it's everybody's favorite product, you know, partly because it's free, which means that if you're somewhere that's never done it before, you now have a tool that you can do it for free. But now some of those people are running the challenge of, well, I don't really have enough users to, to, to run those tests. And, and as you mentioned, the other thing that came up a lot this year um, were people struggling with um, generating great hypotheses um, and, and doing the getting the user research to generate really strong hypotheses for their tests. That was one challenge. And the other challenge that has always been the top uh, challenge that conversion optimizers have listed is getting buy-in. And part of that buy-in being getting buy-in to sort of trust the testing process, to not, you know, give in to you know, the hippo, the CEO, what they want to test. Um, so you saw people kind of having two different problems with test hypotheses. One, really having the research to do it. And two, convincing their boss that, yes, we really should follow this data, not just test 
you know, the shiny object that you saw or the thing that you saw your competitor do. Um, but but buy-in has always been, you see, you see some of the open-ended responses and the things like getting my idiot boss to stop, you know, bothering, like, you know, there's a lot of, there's some frustration that comes out at, at some point um, in some of these responses. But um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. You kind of see the two branches of, you have the more mature testing programs where we're seeing people talk about things like trying to develop a culture of experimentation in their organizations or trying to create a center of excellence for testing within their organization, which mm-hmm. are sort of signals to me of an industry that's a little more mature versus people just saying, you know, I don't know how to interpret my A-B testing results. And then you also have the people now that are, that are starting with Google Optimize that don't really have a budget, that may not have the users, the traffic, don't have a history of doing user research or in small companies. And they're trying to figure out how do I run meaningful tests when I don't have a lot of users, when I don't have a big budget for research, when it's you know brand new for my organization to be thinking about this um, as a discipline, um, so you see kind of those two things with the maturity from just you know conversion optimization has been around for a little while now, and then you also see those new entrants that are kind of coming in at the bottom um, trying to develop processes for the first time. Yeah, can you talk a bit about uh, the demographics of uh, all the participants? Where do they come from? What do they do? Sure, it's um, it's you know the the bulk. Uh, I want to say plurality, but not a majority are usually from the U.S. And then you you take Western Europe as a, as a block, and that's probably two thirds to three quarters. We actually had a decent chunk um, from India this year. And, and again, you know, we're we had 400 respondents. Um, that's sort of ballpark for where we usually are. We know that you know it's a it's a survey. It's 400 respondents. You know, if, if we're if we're testing like a vaccine here, this is probably not a representative sample to you know. Be statistically significant in every possible way, but it's a it's a really good chunk of people, um, and we always have you know the the Netherlands is actually always one of the highest as far as response rates, um, okay. as well as the UK is. So it's um, even at CXL Institute we have um, a lot of um, a lot of Dutch customers. So it's it's a uh, Netherlands certainly seems to have its niche there in conversion optimization. I don't know if you perceive yeah. that there, but. Um, it's where we started the podcast, right? So that's that's yeah. that's why that's why yeah. because you obviously obviously <laughs> we can find a correlation in that data, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then you look at you know salaries, and salaries have been pretty stable as far as they're sort of what you would expect as far as um, U.S. is usually up there, like Germany, Switzerland are up there, and then a little bit yep. farther behind are kind of the rest of um, Western Europe, um, and then Australia kind of sneaks in there every now and then. Um, but overall, okay. I mean. We're seeing, and, and again, you know, we're asking people for salaries in U.S. dollars, so we assume that they're translating their salaries from euros accurately. There's a chance that they're not, um, but we're looking at salary ranges. Um, but you're still looking at it's it's a good paying profession as far as um, you know. If you're somewhere in North America or Europe, you can expect you know on average to make around sixty five thousand dollars a year just as an average salary. Um, and then you look at one of the fun things we get to look at is sort of look at the years of experience versus salary. And one of the things that you see is that there's sort of a, a jump at two years where you kind of go from that like brand new analyst to all of a sudden you're you're an analyst now. And then at that four year mark, once you've been kind of there for four years is when you can expect to get up into that, you know, closer to, to six figures. It's still there. There, There's a decent chunk of people making six figures. Most of those are based in the, the U.S. Or, or some of the highest income European countries. Um, and then there are a few people making over 150K a year doing CRO work. So um, or, or optimization work. So um it's a it's a good solid profession. I mean, compared to some of what I would see as the average salaries in like an SEO or PPC role, um, I think CRO is compensated well. And I think that there's a reason for that. You know, it's a very technical skill set um, compared to some of those other ones. It's certainly yeah. in an entry level way. Like if you got to you got to know your stats, you got to know your math. 
Um, you've got to understand some aspects of HTML to be able to, you know, run proper tests and that kind of stuff and do user research. Um, and I think that's generally been reflected in the, in the salaries that we've seen, which have been stable this year. We didn't really see a big change. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's a it's a it's a weird mix because uh, at zero there's a lot of elements like you said it's, it's research it's uh, mm -hmm. technical stuff you need to know how Google Analytics works or maybe even need to manage Google Analytics as a zero sure. specialist uh, maybe some front end uh, uh, development uh, qualities that you that you need to possess mm -hmm. um, and often when when the team grows or when it's a bigger company. Uh, it gets split up, so you don't necessarily have one zero specialist in a senior role, but you have multiple uh, medium uh, roles, uh, media roles, um, in, instead of one person um, doing zero overall. And maybe those those uh, other roles that just re just <laughs> report to like an e-commerce e-com director or something. Mm -hmm. And th th there's no uh, real, not a lot of companies that have a uh, a really senior zero uh, role. I think. Yeah, the, the, that aspect of sort of touching on like different fields, the, the kind of cross team collaboration is one of those things that keeps coming up too in the survey as far as one of the challenges of working across teams and, and the, you know, the, the interesting things that CROs try to have to have to deal with at times, whatever your title is, which is we had some people saying they were trying to balance, um, site updates with brand requirements from the brand team in their company. And so these yep. really interesting challenges of, okay, like you have this thing that you think based on your research is going to convert better, but then you have a brand team that's telling you, well, we don't quite feel like this is the right tone for us. Um, and having to navigate some of those conversations and, and the fact that for, I think it's at least three years now, we've seen that getting, you know, executive or company-wide buy-in be the top challenges, challenge that people have as much as the technical skills matter to do the job right you can see how much the people who are able to walk into a room and be persuasive with C-suite people, the people who know how to explain why it is that you should only run tests based on hypotheses that are data backed, how you explain the value of a test that fails, but provided really good learning. Um, those things that seem really, really critical that if, if I were somebody who was looking to advance my career or, you know, that I want to be overseeing a team that's running a center of excellence for a large organization or something like that, that's helping, um, improve the standards um, of testing in general, like those soft skills are seem like they're absolutely vital because for so many people, it's not just that, you know, it, it's really a, the biggest roadblock they face in being able to do things and do things correctly in a way that have impacts. Yeah. Yeah. And for um, many of them, it's, it's, uh, it's also quite important, uh, like it's with that, that culture, uh, is it, is it also important for your company, uh, and you as a CRO specialist then to improve things like service or things that don't necessarily directly bring in more money, uh, but, uh, I don't know, save time from customer service because you're less sure. annoying on the website or people ask less questions. And do you get the time, uh, to do that and to focus on that or not? Or do you only need to? Or, or can only focus on the things that directly are related to to more revenue. Sure, and we even we even saw somebody who mentioned that they were trying to get their company to implement a sort of conversion optimization mindset to offline activities. So you can imagine yeah. a retail setting, you know, the building in some of that culture of you know experimentation or, or whatever the learnings are, and trying to fold those into maybe you know training for retail store employees. So I mean, those are some of the fascinating things where I don't, I don't again, like a few years ago, it, it probably. Some of the challenges were more basic and rudimentary, and now you really see people trying to, um, you know, have a much more expansive perspective on what conversion optimization, whether you want to call it conversion optimization or revenue optimization, or you know, uh, the you know, optimizing the customer experience, whatever that becomes. 
um, trying to take that more holistic perspective, which which you think ultimately is going to place some of the people who are in on the ground floor now in conversion optimization in, in higher positions in a company. Like it feels when you see some of the challenges they're trying to solve, this feels like a very high level role in the company. This isn't somebody that can be sort of sequestered off as, oh, you're a CRO person and you do your little UX tests and we leave you alone. Like this is somebody who then becomes central to a lot of the decision making that goes on. Will this work? Hmm, maybe not. Isn't that what we're all trying to figure out? With VWO, create and A-B test different variations of your website to continuously discover the best performing versions that improve conversions. Stop guessing. Start A-B testing with VWO today. Are there any questions uh, added this year or changed? A lot of it we try to keep consistent just so we get that longitudinal data. Um, We did ask this year kind of if people had, we always ask what their biggest challenge is, which is the the one we try to, as much as I love open-ended, I also know that people love to just be able to click a radio button and move on. Um, So we did ask people if they had kind of what their aspirations were or hopes were for 2021. Ultimately, a lot of those answers ended up being just kind of the reverse image of the challenges. So if, if the challenge was we have a really bad process, the goal was to develop great processes. Um, so probably a bit of a swing and a miss on adding that yeah. question there. Um, we did ask people about both the testing tool they preferred using, which was kind of impressive to see how much Google Optimize just kind of walked in and said, hey, we're here and we're now taking over in the same way that Google Analytics has kind of taken over a lot of the, the baseline for analytics. Um, and we also asked people about their favorite analytics tools. And again, like that, that one less surprising Google analytics was the, you know, the clear favorite um, and kind of an, an expected set of players um, beyond that. But there was also, you know, we had, I think, I want to say 17 respondents out of 400 when we asked them about their testing tools that it was proprietary, like in-house built from scratch. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it's pretty serious business at that point. Um, so those are probably your enterprise um, people working there, but. Those are the Dutch people from Bold.com and Booking. Uh. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, uh, it, it'll be one of the, I think, things that we'll be able to do. It'll be interesting to see we haven't done yet. Cause I was, uh, we just finished taking in responses basically over the weekend. And so yesterday, all day, I was just digging through the data and, and looking and um, coding some of the qualitative responses. And um, because we've done some of that baseline work now, historically, like, you know, it's CXL, it's a startup, it's content, like you do, you get as much as you can, you get it out the door and you keep moving fast. Um, so we've often only had time to do some of the kind of baseline analysis. And we'll look at a few segments or we'll pair a couple of demographic points like, you know, country or years of experience with some other things to see what we can get. But because we've kind of already done really quickly this baseline, um, Bud, who works with me on the blog, is going to have a chance to really dive into some of the segments and look into a little more detail than we probably have in previous years to maybe pull out some additional insights with the same data that we have um, to spend a little more time. So if there's anything that you think you want to know right now, now would be the time to bring it up. Um, If there are any like particular curiosities or way that you want to prepare um, any kind of data um, and you have ideas, let me know um, either now or after. (laughs) Derek at (laughs) CXL.com. Yeah, if it gets out there in time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and are, are there any, um, uh, do you know of any um, uh, results that broke the trend in uh, 2020 where we saw a trend previously, but 2020 reversed that trend? 
so this will not come as a total shock, but um, when you look at 2016, 2017, or yeah, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, we have three questions where that one asked, uh, compared to last year, is conversion optimization more, less, or the same as far as effectiveness? Compared to last year, is it prioritized more or less the same? Compared to last year, is the budget more or less the same? The past four years, basically, it had been a, an upward trend the whole time, a slow trend, but basically every year people were saying, it's more effective, it's more of a priority, I've got a bigger budget. This year, for the first time, it was basically, um, we saw that either flatten or, or go down. For instance, um, I think historically we had never had more than like six or 8% of people say that CRO was less effective compared to last year. And this year we had 12%. So that's you know almost a, a double the amount. Um, even though it's a small minority still, across the board, it was, you could see that people were, were struggling a little bit this year. We didn't, there were only a handful of mentions of sort of, um, COVID specific things that were in uh, the qualitative responses. So it wasn't, that didn't seem totally front and center, but um, this was really the first year that we saw some of those struggles. And, and, and I don't want to sort of, you know, again, going back to that kind of initial takeaway of, we see both the maturity on one side and then running into some new challenges of kind of trying to do some of these, you know, bigger projects, these center of excellence sort of ideas. And then we also see this democratization of like new people coming in. I think some of those challenges were because the, not just because things were getting worse, but because the industry is maturing. So when you look at, you know, some of the things we would hear on the qualitative responses were, you know, we basically picked all the low hanging fruit at this point and we're struggling to develop more hypotheses that can really move the needle. Um, so again, it's like, that's not a sign that it's less effective so much as you've been doing it for a little while now. You've kind of probably fixed your biggest, ugliest UX issues. And now you're trying to figure out where is that next win that's really going to generate revenue. Or on the flip side, if you have some of the people that are just starting out and they're struggling to get wins because they've never done it before, but for the first time ever, maybe they can do it uh, because they have access to something like Google Optimize. You know, th those aren't necessarily bad signs of the industry so much as it's just a different um, set of problems. So you fold that in maybe with just some of the, you know, overall chaos of 2020 and maybe teams having to deal with working remotely and maybe it's harder to persuade the C-suite if you're not in the room with them and can't give them a nice shiny slide deck and instead, you know, your internet's cutting in and out and you're, you know, like me sitting with a boring blank wall behind you. Um, you know, maybe those are some of the challenges. Yeah, yeah. And, and definitely, I think that uh, in 2020, it became clear to um, uh, a lot of people in Zero what the position of Zero was in the company. Sure. Either it was because these are extreme uh, uh, times, extreme, cir extreme circumstances for those companies. Either it was going really well or not so much. And uh, you had to explain a lot of things. Sure. I, I remember um, a quote from somebody that was uh, uh, secular tailwinds hide all sins. So the idea that when, when things are going well, you can kind of get away with a lot of, yeah. you know, suboptimal yeah. practices. And now all of a sudden, like you say, like for some people, all of a sudden, you know, where maybe the last few years, the CEO wasn't really asking you to calculate a really hard ROI for your program. Now, all of a sudden, when, you know, maybe budgets are getting cut, now you're having to do that. Maybe now that puts the pressure on, yeah. you know, we need to find those wins that aren't just the micro conversions of more leads, um, you know, more clicks, whatever. We need to find those macro conversions of how we actually generating bottom line revenue compared to the expenses that it costs to, to run this program. The, the question of, you know, and this probably isn't unique to conversion optimization, but another thing that usually comes up is sort of just the lack of human resources in general, sort of, we wish we could run more tests. We don't have the time to do it. Um, or some people would say, you know, we spend most of our time fixing bugs in existing tests instead of developing ideas and running new tests. So that, that QA component that again, is probably one of those, they wish they had a full-time person just to do QA. Um, but they don't. And so then you, you have people that are, you know, just focused on kind of uh, tidying things up versus 
really coming up with ideas to, or implementing ideas to really generate a lot of revenue. Yeah. How are you using this uh, uh, survey for your content next year? Sure. So, I mean, it, to be honest, we've done it. We don't have, it's, it's not like a, it's not a huge moneymaker for us. We you know we don't, we don't do this survey because we, we have some very, you know, structured um, way to generate revenue. We do it because we love conversion optimization. We think of ourselves as, as close to the center of that universe and feel like it's an important thing and, and useful thing to do for the industry. And so mostly it is kind of to go out there and say, Hey people, here, here's all the data that you want. Like, here's everything that we could figure out. Um, I think, you know, the, some of the things that we've learned at Sixel in general is that, you know, one of the things that people need the most help with as far as when it comes to, can I Google an answer to this versus do I really need a course and an instructor to kind of walk me through it? Usually the more technical a topic is, the more you kind of need that handholding. So you can imagine, you know, if it's, if it's setting up a specific like set of GTM tags or we're talking about like identifying certain types of errors and testing via statistics and that kind of stuff, it kind of helps to have somebody explain that to you versus you may struggle just to read a blog post and walk away with that. So we've always felt yeah. like as course content, the kind of stuff that provides the most value that people really feel the need for is usually more technical. Um, and, I, and I don't think that's changed. I think some of the things that recur that people could probably solve already is some of the, the process-based components. I mean, to be honest, like we, the, the process that the PEP developed that CXL agency uses both for identifying test hypotheses for prioritizing tests. Those are all publicly available on the blog and have been for years and years and years um, as yeah. far as frameworks. And that, that is a lot of what people um, tend to bring up in the qualitative responses as far as one of the struggles is having this process and framework. Some of that stuff's already out there. Um, but both definitely uh, data, data quality and data analysis tend to come up a lot. Data quality, obviously, you have people that are trying to integrate data across multiple tools. Um, you know, are dealing with, you know, GDPR or new things that are coming out that are kind of changing what data they have access to, as well as the data analysis component of really saying, okay, like one, one side is being able to trust your data to get accurate data. The other is, can you open up analytics and can you stare at analytics and pull out something that's really going to help you develop a hypothesis? Can you really learn about user behavior um, rather than just knowing sort of yeah. where, where to find a report? Um, so we yes, have, especially, especially for people that have a different background, not necessarily an analytical background, uh, going into zero, but more like coming from a content background, design background, user research background. Uh, you might not have, um, the, the skills to dive into Google Analytics and fix all the, the data problems. Right. So sure. that might be a big issue. Sure. And, and you know, you can, you can kind of take that a step further too, which is the thing that comes up a lot of times is the challenge of setting good KPIs for, for conversion optimization, which, which is both sort of, you know, statistically valid KPIs, things that data they can trust, data that matters, but also at some times, you know, that if you, I know from being an analyst, some of the things that I might look at as an analyst are really in the weeds, but they're not going to translate to a meeting with either your client or other stakeholders. So finding a KPI that a stakeholder is going to accept as both valid and meaningful, and at the same time, one that really is representative of your work. Um, so again, those are some of those things. It, it does feel to some degree, maybe like these are soft skill um, challenges. It's like you need that hard skill background of really understanding how to get data out of analytics that matters, but at the same time, figuring out how to translate that into you know um, something that's going to resonate with people throughout your organization. So we, we've we never really done soft skill stuff at CXL Institute. I don't know that that's going to be a priority, but I, I think you see for some people, for, for some people at the, at the entry level who haven't done it before, yes, they need those technical skills. Other people who've been doing it for years now, and have mastered those technical skills could probably stand to spend a quarter really learning some of those, those softer skills, whether it's with clients or internally to, to kind of remove some of the roadblocks that they face.
Yeah, cool. And uh, I think it's really interesting. So for for the for the survey, I'm really looking forward to, to the report. Uh, when people want to download it, where do they go? Sure. So we'll publish it on the on the CXL blog um, next week. Um, it'll be either Tuesday or Wednesday, um, yep. depending on the chaos of startup life. Um, and, and and next week will be this week when we publish it. So oh, sorry. Can, uh, this, yeah. December December eighth <laughs> or ninth. Yeah. Oh, I, I, oh, I should I should have had that right. That was an old thing that used to get me in trouble with uh, editing encyclopedias. You know, so these are these are print encyclopedias back in the day. And so if you put in a thing like you know a recent report, well, if that encyclopedia sits on the shelf for five years, <laughs> recent is no longer recent. And so you just yeah. like in your mind, you just had to scratch out all these words. Um, so yeah, so December eighth or ninth, um, we we like to publish kind of a, a blog post version that will have maybe seven or eight kind of high level takeaways. Um, and then there'll be a PDF report downloadable um, with kind of all the data that we have. Um, and so some of that basic stuff we know, some of it hopefully will come up with some new interesting things from segmenting um, some of this data further than we usually get to. But yeah. yeah. Yep. You already have things that you think, oh, we should do this differently next year? I, I think, one, it would be great to get um, more more data always. Um, yeah. You know, 400 responses is great if we get 1,000 or 1,500. It would be interesting just because usually what not from the top level takeaways, but that would give us some more flexibility to segment in a, in a meaningful way to not, not be segmenting down to, oh, we had 10 responses in this segment. And yeah. at that point, you know, what are you really looking at? Um, that would always be great. But I think we've honestly probably just underutilized the, the information that we have at this point. Because we, we have that potential to look at some stuff and to kind of take some of those cross sections of looking at, you know, if you have three years of experience, where you should expect to be or, you know, what are the problems that people have year one, year two, year three compared compared to people who've been doing it for a decade? Those are some of the really interesting questions. You know, I'm, I'm it's somewhat speculative for me to say, you know, there's this maybe this soft skill issue with people been around for a while. And that's one of those things I would like to be able to dig in and validate. Maybe we'll be able to do that this year. Um, but yeah, probably added maybe a couple more open ended questions just because the, the responses are always fascinating. There was there yeah. was one person out of 400 responses who, when we asked what their biggest challenge was, their response was NA or non-applicable. So there's one person who's figured all of it out. <laughs> I don't know who this is. We need to track that person yeah. down. <laughs> yeah. So they, maybe we'll they, get... they should, he or she should do a course. I was about year. to say, yeah, so then we'll, we'll find this person. They can be our instructor because clearly if they, if they haven't solved every problem, they've solved the anxiety of not having solved every problem. So they've gotten something done. SiteSpect offers a worldwide unique A-B testing, personalization, and product recommendation solution. SiteSpect works server-side without any tags or scripts, which guarantees an optimal performance. The SiteSpect solution eliminates delays and the chance of any flickering effects, and this approach also ensures that the current and future browser security rules like ITP and ETP don't make an impact on your A-B testing and personalizations. For more info, visit SiteSpect.com with your background and uh, doing this for a while, doing the, the, the survey for a while. Do you have an insight for us as, as CROs uh, or the CRO world, uh, an insight that you think you have that others might not have picked on, uh, have not picked up yet? Sure. I think, you know, looking at content and knowing that at times, you know, content plays a role in generating conversions for people. It, you know, producing content is really expensive. And, and often what I see, especially in kind of the the gated content, which is, you know, a common way to generate leads is people put in way more effort than they have to, to create something compelling for people to exchange their email for. So that the idea of sort of people think that you have to create this 150 page ebook to convince somebody to give you their email, where really, if you have a one page process checklist about how you do something that can be really tantalizing and really, really easy to produce. 
And at the end of the day, most people are choosing whether or not they're going to exchange their email based on what that landing page comment uh, content is, based on what you're promising them. They're not going to see that 150 page ebook until after they've already given you their email. So it, it, it's usually it's almost like people creating content or thinking about content are looking at it and not thinking about where that real element of persuasion is happening, which is with the landing page. You certainly have to fulfill a promise. You can't tell people that you're giving them the best piece of content ever and it's a you know a five-page PDF with stock photos and terrible information. But in general, the more you can think about sort of streamlining that content production it is certainly one opportunity. And the other thing that I've seen um, in a B2B world, especially if you're paying for expensive clicks on LinkedIn and that kind of thing, is you can pre-qualify people with some of that landing page copy and, and kind of the angle that you take with your content. So say you have... You know, for instance, our, our current uh, state of conversion optimization survey, if we wanted to use this as like a lead magnet on um, LinkedIn or something like that, and you know, you're going to pay several dollars per click. If we just pitch it as, hey, this is the state of optimization survey, that's going to go after a really wide audience that maybe we don't want. We could segment that data just a little bit to say that, you know, for B2, this is, you know, the state of B2B optimization at enterprise companies. If that's our target audience, you can just tweak that content a little bit. You can tweak that ad copy a little bit and you end up pre-qualifying that audience. So you're not going to pay for a bunch of clicks from people that really aren't in your target audience. So even with the same content, sometimes you can make just little tiny changes either to the, the way the content's laid out, you know, what the title page says or which segment you provide or what the ad copy is. That's um, really pretty inexpensive to do and can certainly save you some money um, on some of those ad clicks or just get you a little more pre-qualified audience, you know, bring in, obviously people who are going to download that are probably in that segment. So maybe that's information that you can push to your CRM. That's remarketing. You can do that's a separate email list. You can put them in all without really having to create a complete standalone. Okay. What's the 150 page ebook that we do for B2B enterprise? What's the 150 page ebook we do for, for B2C? There, there, there are efficiencies to find there. Okay. Nice. I, are you also involved with uh, Pep's new project, uh, copy testing? I'm not involved with copy testing. I'm actually involved in another uh, different project called uh, Adept. Adept. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, never a dull moment. Um, yeah, so Adept has been an interesting, it really is trying to kind of distill a lot of marketing content to really, really actionable checklists, um, which the, the fascinating part of that is it becomes language, becomes really, really important um, as far as the verb you choose, whether or not, um, you know, you use an adjective. For instance, if I told you to, um, you know, use a user research tool to gather relevant information. Well, if you've never done that before, the word relevant is completely meaningless to you. If I'm saying, so what you have to do is say, well, what do you really mean by relevant? What is the specific data that you expect to gather? And if that's saying you want to gather like motivations, you know, doubts, whatever, you have to do that. And so what you find is if you're sourcing this information, you're having people write it, novices love to use, for instance, they love to use adjectives because they don't know. So they just say relevant because it's the easiest way for them to get away with it. And that's what you'll also see a lot of stuff that clutters up page one of search results is that kind of like cheap freelancer content that people don't really know what they're talking about, but they can kind of pretend like they know what they're talking about. And then you find experts who will say, you know, gather relevant information or set appropriate KPIs because they've done it so many darn times that they know what they're doing. They don't feel like they have to explain what a reasonable KPI target might be. Um, yeah. So it's sort of unpacking some of those assumptions that people buried into their processes and really getting to the nuts and bolts. It's honestly, it's a, it's, I think it's, it's not so much about just distilling what you might think of as taking a 3000 word blog post and, and creating a checklist out of it. It's more about, if you think about um, like a recipe website and, and, you know, the idea of you can't say, you know, how to make a chicken is not get a chicken, cook it until it's done, make a nice pan sauce and enjoy. Like 
that's a terrible recipe, but that's a lot of what the marketing content out there is saying. It's like, it's saying like, oh, you know, get a good hypothesis based on data, run your test until it hits significance and then implement the results. And a lot of people say like, well, wait, how do I do that stuff? Um, so that, that Adept is really trying to figure out, okay, how do we create yeah. recipes out of stuff that, that often is, is not clear enough to action on? Yeah, don't just tell me step one to five, but also tell me one A, one B, one yep. C. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar. There's a cartoon of uh, you sort of make fun of it. It's, it's how to draw an owl. And the first step is you draw yeah. one big circle for the body and one little circle for the head. And the next step is draw the rest of the fucking owl. And it's this, you know, beautiful, like professional artist finished. And, you know, for all of us out there, there's like, well, something's happening in between these two things that I really need to know. Yeah. So we're trying to unpack all of that. And it's, it's um, wonderfully challenging and painful. Um, you know, when, when Pep first talked about it and asked if I'd be interested in, in kind of running lead on content on that, it was like, well, this sounds really impossible. So yeah, let's try to do this. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there's been a lot that we've learned. And I'm actually, uh, yeah, there'll be a, a blog post um, that's going out um, that'll already be live at this point that um, yeah. I'm publishing that's, that's kind of sharing some of the early learnings from that process too. Yeah, and people can already subscribe or um, yep. or d donate to it. Uh, I mean, it's not live yet, right? So you can already subscribe to the first so, so year, I, X, year, X years. Yeah, Def, you can you can basically get in, and there's a um, get early access, and basically kind of if yeah. pay pay now for one year and get three years. Um, so we're it's already a release date. Uh, it's going to be month, in the spring. Mm -hmm. We're we're basically spring. we have a yeah. we have a, an existing kind of early user group now that we're going to start. Um, doing some beta tests with as far as what the UX actually looks like. We have, I'm trying to think now, maybe a five to 700 playbooks um, so far. Um, and that'll be probably in the neighborhood of maybe 2000 by the time we, we start to go live. And then from there, just to keep building on that, we're trying to kind of cover the core things first. And then we're excited about getting people in there that can then share kind of really um, niche processes that are going to help people, not just I need to run an A-B test, but I need to run an A-B test for a product description on a fashion website. You know, some of those really detailed uh, things are going to have those little bits of information that kind of make it seem so much more relevant to, to what you're working on rather than the generic instructions that you then have to translate to whatever you're doing. Yeah, cool. So, but before it's spring, we need to do uh, more stuff, uh, especially with the podcast. We want more content. So do you have some tips for us uh, uh, for who, who I should ask on the, on the show? Let me think. Because, um, you know, I, I'm spoiled because, you know, working with the blog, I constantly get access to, you know, people that are that are writing posts for us that do really, really smart and interesting things. Are there people out there that you haven't been able to get for the blog <laughs> that, you know, that, you, that you wanted, but that don't like writing or something? Yeah, sure. So well, this is, I think, what I'd say about, you know, one of the things that I've learned from doing it is that the people that will give you, you know, there are the people out there that are, you know, the people with tens of thousands of Twitter followers that, um, you know, you're lucky if you can get the time of day from them, but they're also getting hit up so much to do content that if you get them, they're probably going to give you some piece of an idea that they've already been sharing the last year and are going to share for the next six months. There's, um, you know, a subset of people who are sort of like on the rise and they're like in the weeds practitioners, but they will pour out their heart and soul and give you this thing that they've been working on for two years that they've never shared with anybody. Um, so those are always usually my favorites for the, for the blog. Cause they just give us so much value. Um, and it's, it's, you know, brand new, really interesting stuff. Um, there's a, you could talk to, so Kevin Indig, I don't know if you know him. He's uh he does SEO and content. He used to be at Atlassian, but now he's at G2. Um, and he does some of the interesting things that could be uh, fun things to talk about with him are, 
you know, at scale, SEO becomes more about making decisions about templates um, and kind of broader changes to the whole user experience. There's also um, Will Critchlow, who used to run the agency Distilled that he sold, and now he has been running um, a SaaS company that does SEO testing. So it's a combination of like CRO and SEO. And the idea is to be able to test changes to templates. Again, like if you have a product page and you're wondering, should we move this? If we move this element here, how's that going to affect search? Um, and that can be kind of complicated because Google doesn't like you to show it one thing to show users another thing. So you have to be really careful about how you do it. Um, but they've been running a, developing a testing tool to be able to do that, um, which would probably be an, inter an interesting intersection. Again, as conversion optimization continues to kind of become a more holistic company-wide practice to see where they're starting to bump into where you have to make decisions that both conversion optimizers and SEOs and your brand people and your CEO all sign off on to really have an impact. Um, because if you are somewhere to, at a bigger company, you've been there for a while, you've probably solved like all just the really crummy UX, UX issues that you have. And you are having to look at, we need to make these big changes now, but we can't kill off organic acquisition if that's millions of visitors a year. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a great topic. And again, something that's uh, that popped up in the survey, right? So, And if, I, I will have to also put in a plug. I don't know if you've talked to Chanel Mullen before. She used to nope. do content um, at uh, CXL, but she now does uh, CRO in-house for Shopify. Um, and she is wonderful um, and brilliant. Um, and she's a great intersection of somebody who has really broad knowledge from having done CXL blog for a while and also has the everyday in the weeds um, of being a practitioner at a, at a large and very quickly growing company. Um, so she would be a fun one too. Good. Those are great tips. So thank you so much. Uh, thank, and thanks, Derek, for uh, introducing us to the to the survey results uh, from this year. Uh, we look forward to, to the report and uh, look forward to talking to you again uh, next year. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we'll be here. <laughs> great. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. And this concludes Season 2, Episode 48 of the Zero Quay Podcast with Derek Gleason from CXL. Next Monday, I talk with Merit Aho, and we'll be talking about sequential testing methods as a safe alternative to peaking. Talk to you then, and always be optimizing.